We are in a series called Attitude Adjustment, and it's because we need just that, an attitude adjustment. Now bear with me, because I'm missing page eight, which is very troubling. I think this is the right page eight. When we get to it, we'll know. Right now you're going, I know what you're doing right now. You're going, page eight? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, I'm called to love you, people. <laughs> All right, so we are working on this concept of an attitude adjustment. See, we can't change our circumstances. We spend a lot of our time, oh, there's another whole set. Thanks, guys. Um, we spend our, our, uh, most, most of our time trying to change our circumstances, and so often they're outside of our control. And, and we spend almost no time trying to change our attitude, which we can control and which would change so much in our lives. The Apostle Paul, he wrote about half of the New Testament, maybe a little bit more than that. He was uh, in chains, uh, shackled to a Roman guard. Uh, life, in his mind at that point, likely had to be coming to a quick end. He's under house arrest, and he writes in that situation, under those circumstances, a book called Philippians, which has become known as the book of joy. I mean, how do you write a book about joy chained to a guy that's likely your executioner? Paul said, it's all about your attitude. Here's what he said. He said, have this attitude. What kind of attitude? Well, he started with what we talked about last week. He said, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. But rather, he made himself nothing, and he took on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And last week we looked at, at, at what we would say as, as followers of Jesus is the worst kind of attitude. It is at the core of all of our fallenness and our brokenness and our trouble. It's an attitude of pride and I gave you exercises um, to work on your humility. Um, did anybody try working on their humility this week? It's not fun. See, I had it worked on for me because I dropped my daughter off at high school. I'm not going to mention which high school, some of you know, but I dropped my daughter off at high school. There's a little sign there that when I dropped her off that says, absolutely no dropping off of children here. Well, that doesn't apply to me, right? <laughs> and so, of course, I dropped her off there. And as I turned the car around to pull out of the parking lot, there was the principal real, literally in the road like this. And he gave me a talking to like I was 12. And uh, it fluffed up the old pride like it was, you know, racing. But anyway, today we're going to talk about pride's little brother. Because where there is pride, this attitude is right on its heels, trust me. Now, when my kids were little, I put a lot of work into Christmas. I love Christmas. Friends of mine joke, they call me Mr. Holiday, like, and when Joan and I didn't have any money when we were first married, we had the kids kind of young. And so, I, you know, I just, when Joan's family, she used to get one gift for Christmas. In my family, it's like a gift orgy. It was like just disgusting how much stuff. And so I didn't have the money for that kind of stuff, but I wanted the, the, the party to be big. So I'd go to the dollar store, man, and I would just wrap junk, right? And Joan used to get so mad, what am I going to do with all this stuff? But I just wanted the kids to have this moment on Christmas morning. And so I put a lot of work into this, shopping, buying, wrapping. And then so then, you know, we, we would pray, and then they'd come down the stairs, and, and two months of work, it was over in about a minute and a half, right? I mean, they, they would tear into these presents. 
present after present. Literally, we have film of it. They'd look at it. Sometimes if they couldn't read yet, they'd ask what it was. We'd tell them what it was, and they'd chuck it over their shoulder and go to the next one. It was rapid fire, right? And moments later, I mean, literally a minute and a half later, two months of work and a lot of money, a pile of gifts, blessings really, behind them, around them, and there was not even a moment of reflection, thanksgiving, or gratitude. In fact, you know what often happened right after the last blessing was received? Yes, you do, all right? Tears, because there was no more. Or I opened my, if you watch the video, all you hear is Joan and I going, slow down, slow down. You're going to be out of gifts soon. Courtney's going slower than you are. She's going to have more than you, right? And it, did, it always ended the same with wailing and crying and gnashing of teeth, right? I mean, could you imagine? They opened these gifts. It was just, it was, they felt they were entitled to them, right? Like they deserved them. <laughs> Kids. Oh, man, it's a good thing we grow out of that when we get older, isn't it? I mean... We do grow out of that, don't we? Entitlement, lack of thanksgiving. See, here's what I think underlines this talk for me and the attitude we need to change. Uh, uh, this will show you that it's how prevalent it is because there are a lot of really smart people with fancy marketing degrees from Ivy League schools and they spend the best hours of their days trying to appeal to something in us that most of us are unaware of. A side of us, an attitude that we have that needs adjusting. And they know it. And they play us for suckers. Now, I'm not sure when it started. I kind of remember the first time, though. I, I, I was probably, I don't know, about 11 years old. And McDonald's is the one that reminded me of it. They taught me, they were the first one to teach me this deep cultural truth. They said, I deserved a break today. And I was 11 and I thought to myself, I do deserve a break, right? I explained to my mother and father how I was worthy of a Big Mac. I deserved the Big Mac. They introduced me to tuna fish casserole rather than the Big Mac. They said I didn't deserve that Big Mac. Now, this must have kind of triggered something. It must have been a pretty successful ad campaign because this, man, this just took off. And so this week I just started thinking about, like, you know, I don't know, what else do I deserve? Well, apparently, according to Lamborghini, I deserve the best. <laughs> now, I was unaware of this, but did you know that you deserve a $150,000 car? I don't know what you did, but congratulations. You deserve that. Now, uh, Barclays tells me that I deserve, quote, the luxury of their premier banking services. Now, I don't have any money. But apparently I deserve, I deserve to have substantial amounts of it, and it should be invested with their premier group. I deserve that. Did you guys know that there's a certain kind of house that you deserve? I mean, apparently it's a pretty nice house, because I looked at it compared to the house that I'm currently in, and I thought, man, I'm getting ripped off. I deserve something much more substantial than this now you might look and go, okay, that's silly. That's materialism. Of course they, they come on to materialism. But we as Christians, we believe that relationships and things like that are much more important. They'd never get us with that. Really. You know, tough marriage. 
things at home, you know, a little bit of tension. Maybe you go online, you say to yourself, you know what, let me check out some information on relationships. Well, if you Google that, you'll see a lot of memes. How about this one? When it comes to your relationships, if you're wondering if you deserve better, you do. Take a look at the person sitting next to you and say, I deserve a heck of a lot better than you, right? Because this is apparently, I didn't realize, I explained this to my wife, she didn't buy it, but I explained to her that I deserve something so much better than this. Now, here, ladies, once you get out of that relationship, you deserve so much better. Once you get out of that relationship, how are you going to get that new guy? Well, the answer is, you're going to do it with your new face. Because according to this plastic surgeon, I don't know what you did, but you deserve a better face. Worried about that first Tinder meeting? What he might think? No problem. You can just head over to Hart uh, Parkland Hospital. They'll give you the body that you deserve because you need to have the body confidence you deserve. Gentlemen, you're thinking, I know what you guys are thinking. Women. They're so superficial, so vain. This kind of stuff would never appeal to guys. Well, apparently the same surgeon that does facelifts for ladies doesn't think so. Because it turns out, you deserve to look hot, boys. Who knew? Man, I am missing out on a lot of stuff I deserve. And see, AT&T kind of, kind of started looking around at this, and they realized uh, there was a whole, man, we could appeal to a lot of people with this concept. So they put this little commercial together. Check this out. I'm debating between getting a slow car and a fast car. Which one do you think I should get? Fast car. Okay, why? Because, man, you deserve it. You, you deserve, deserve it. it. You, you deserve, deserve it. You deserve it. You deserve it. I've been singing that stupid song all week ever since I found that out, you know, it just plays in your head. Everything I see now, I deserve it. Now, has anybody ever seen that ad? If you saw it, you saw it online because it never got released. It was like the marketing mafia came along and said, oh, don't, you can't blow the cover, right, on that. See, this thing in us is really deep in our nature, and our consumer culture, it like blows on it like it's a flame and fluffs it up big. You deserve it. You're entitled to it. I mean, our kids breathe it in 24-7. Now think about it. Entitlement is fed by our pride. That's what's at its root. Gratitude, thankfulness, is fed by humility. And that's why, first, we need to work on the pride issues. That's why I gave you humility exercises last week, because that will help us in our entitlement issues. See, the more you think you're entitled to, the less grateful for things you will be. You wonder why people who keep getting more and more show less and less gratitude because the bigger our sense of entitlement, the smaller our sense of gratitude. And when you keep getting told you deserve or you're entitled to, your gratitude muscle gets, like, paralyzed. Which, in a Christian framework, is a big problem. 
It's more than just a cultural issue, a, so, a social issue, a psychological issue. It's a sin. Paul says it's the hallmark of a life opposed to God. He was trying to explain this to some folks, and so he started trying to tell them what a life uh, lived opposed to God would look like. And he said this, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him, him as God. So we'll pause there for a second. We, we do this, right? This is kind of our original sin. We talked about it in our origin series. We know God. But we don't glorify him as God. We really want to glorify ourselves, build our own castles, kingdoms, and towers. God is here to help us with that. We glorify ourselves and we, we use God, but we don't glorify him. And so Paul says that they, they, they knew God. They didn't glorify him, nor give thanks to him. Well, since they had a wrong understanding, since we have a wrong understanding of God, and since we often want to glorify ourselves, that doesn't lead to much thanksgiving. But not giving thanks, stick with me, church, is a huge issue. Paul says, here's the result. They knew God, but they didn't glorify him. They didn't give thanks to him. And they're thinking the way they thought, because they, they glorified themselves, because they thought they deserved it, they weren't thankful, their thinking became futile and their hearts were darkened. See, this sense of entitlement and gratitude that is so pervasive will jack you up. Now, the Bible's word, oftentimes for ingratitude, we're going to talk about this over the next few weeks, is a word often called, or often used, grumbling. Anybody know anybody that grumbles? Paul says that grumbling, this kind of constant dissatisfaction with life, things, people, work, church, marriages, friends, you name it. Paul says that this grumbling is the quintessential mindset of a life without God. You can be lured away from God by grumbling quicker than almost anything else. And God, let me tell you, I, I know this is weird, but I hope to explain it to you. God takes ingratitude and grumbling quite serious, quite seriously, because of what it does to you, because he loves you. Paul, he heard about grumbling in the church of Corinth, and so he wrote to them a, a, a story of their ancestors. Some of you know the biblical accounts of the nation of Israel and how they were um, slaves in Egypt and how God had come to set them free. God had been so good to them. He'd, he'd, he'd freed them from, from slavery. He even split the Red Sea for them to walk through. He fed them. He led them to the promised land. But when they got there, they, their response was not thanksgiving and praise. It was grumbling. They weren't grateful. And so Paul writes this church at Corinth that was grumbling. He says, listen, do not grumble. As some of them did. He recounts what God had done for them. And he says, and they were killed by the destroying angel. If you're a grumbler right now, you're a little uncomfortable, right? See, grumbling, entitlement, lack of gratitude killed then, and, and my, what I would tell you is it's still killing you. Paul, in this book of joy, written while he's chained to his enforcer, he says, and you would look at that and go, you know, his circumstances couldn't really be much worse. Do you know, Paul actually did deserve much better. I mean, he really did. He had suffered tremendously for Christ. He deserved much better than this. He writes to the Philippians, listen, guys, do everything. 
without grumbling or arguing. It's not just what a lack of gratitude does to us. It's what a lack of gratitude does to those around us. It's, it's, cancer, it's like a cancer. It, it, it spreads. This is a crazy story. I never really focused on this before. It's one of those things in the gospel, like when you're reading, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you come across these and you're just like, oh, that's just Jesus traveling. And so you don't, you don't stop. But let me share this. Luke writes this great story about this. He says, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Okay, so he's, he's on the border of Samaria. And if you know anything about what the Israelites, right, Jesus' people, thought about the Samaritans, you would understand that that wasn't a place that often good Jews would go. Because the Samaritans were like, they, the Israelites had a word for them, they called them the Samaritan dogs. Right? They were looked down upon, they were far from God. I mean, they, they were just the worst kind of people. And Jesus decides to take a route where he's going to wind up stumbling upon some of them. And so the scripture says, um, as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Now, some of you know this, in the first century, about the worst thing that could happen to you would be that you would get uh, leprosy. If you were around in the 80s, um, when AIDS was becoming an ep epidemic, and uh, I mean, people were just, you know, remember when Magic Johnson listened to that at work on the radio and all the rest, and it was like, well, you know, it, it was like a modern day leprosy. In Jesus' day, if you got leprosy, not only was it a physical death sentence, it was a relational and cultural death sentence. If somebody had any signs of leprosy, they were cast out of the community, they were put contained in leper colonies, kept away from everybody else, and you were immediately an outcast. In fact, if you wanted, if you were by anybody, you would have to ring a bell to warn them of, of your disease, or you'd have to yell, unclean, 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 when anybody came near you. And it wasn't just society and culture you were cut off. You, you were actually cut off from, from the faith. You, you became a religious outcast, too. You were ceremonial unclean. You were unable to participate in worship in any way. And so here comes Jesus. And he hears them call from a distance. Why a distance? They're off in their leper colony. They can't come close. And here's what happens. Jesus, the scripture, Luke says, when Jesus saw them, he said, probably yelling to them, listen, go show yourselves to the priests. And they went, and they were cleansed. Now, now check this out here. Why the priest? Why would you go show yourself to the prize Jesus? Jesus they, they're saying cleanse us. And he goes, listen, just go show yourself to the priest. The answer is because most people died horrific deaths from leprosy, right? I mean, limbs are falling off. It's grotesque and all the rest. The smell, it's terrible. But every once in a while, somebody would get cured. And now it was very dangerous to, to have them come back into the community. So in order to be allowed back into the community, you had to get the priest to say that leprosy, you were no longer a leper and you were welcomed back into fellowship. So Jesus yells at him and says, you want to be cured? Go ahead, start heading towards the priest. And what I love it is he's done nothing for them yet. He says, just start walking. I mean, if you think I can heal you, if you think I am who I am, start walking in faith. And what I, what's so cool is as they went, once they believed, once they started walking in faith, they start heading back into town, acting on their faith. And what happens? They're healed. And I could give you a sermon just on that. That's pretty cool. But here, here's the last piece of the story that really, really sticks out to me. One of them, it was ten, 
And so it's not all of them. It's not most of them. It's not some of them. It's just one of them. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. And he threw himself at Jesus' feet and he thanked him. Check this out. There's a little note there. And he was a Samaritan. That's an important detail because the others, I mean, they were probably likely Jewish. They don't come back. It's the Samaritan who comes back. Is it possible that, that because they were Jewish uh, and Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, is it possible that it might have been for them kind of a sense of, yes, this is our rabbi, this is our Messiah, we've obeyed the commandments, we started walking, we believed, we deserve this healing, we've done something, we stepped out in faith, and so this sense of entitlement for them, right, this sense of entitlement for them leads to a complete lack of gratitude. But the Samaritan, because he was a Samaritan, his lack of entitlement is from where his gratitude sprang. And look at what happens. Look at what gratitude does in your life. This is actually both sad and funny at the same time. Jesus asked, well, wait a minute. Weren't there 10 that were cleansed? I thought I... I thought when you left, I, I had healed all ten of you. Where are the other nine? Has nobody returned to give thanks to God except this foreigner? And then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Jesus is looking and going, man, there's something not right about this picture. I get, these people are supposed to be followers of God. They don't. They don't come back, but the guy that doesn't, he, he did. Where are the other nine? There's a lot of points here. First is this. Gratitude grows faith. Listen to me. Gratitude grows faith. Entitlement kills faith. There were ten, nine of them, like we do all the time, like kids on Christmas morning. They take the gift and they run. Of course, they're thankful, but they're off. One stops, reflects. Look at what's happened to me. I'm new, I'm different, I'm healed, I'm changed, I'm saved. Thinks about what he's been given and he becomes thankful. And this attitude of gratitude results in an action of going back to the giver. And what does he do? He throws himself at Jesus' feet. Gratitude grows faith. The other guys take the gifts and run. They have the same problem you and I do. I'm sure they were thankful, but they didn't stop. They didn't reflect. They didn't express any gratitude. They just took the gift as if it was owed and ran. Now, this happens in all of our relationships. We do it to God all the time, but it's not just a God thing. Gratitude grows faith. Here's the next thing that gratitude does. Gratitude grows, heals, restores, and changes relationships. My wife was here first service, so I got to express this to her then. But So I'm married to this incredible woman. For a lot of years, I didn't really appreciate that. I mean, so in our house, right, the alarm goes off. Um, for Joan, it goes off at like 6-something because Joan has to get up and make Caroline breakfast because Caroline's got to get the bus at 6.40. So Joan's got to get up and make her breakfast. And then, you know, I get up a little while later, come down, 
have my coffee, and then, you know, I got to get in the shower because I have a very important job, so I need to get in the shower. And, uh, and so while Joan waits for me to get out of the shower, she does things like she's supposed to do, makes the bed, cleans up. <laughs> I get out, you know. Joan get, don't, takes her shower in five minutes so she can get out the door, which somehow then she still leaves before me. And then uh, she works all day, and she gets home earlier than I do. So and this is the truth. Courtney will back me up on this. When she comes home, she just starts cleaning, right, and doing things. And a few hours later, I walk in, and do you know what my first question is? What's for dinner? Because I deserve it. I deserve it. I worked all day. Where's my dinner? Right? I deserve it. And I... At one level or another, I've been doing this for a quarter of a century. And I, just, I just, it, the Lord has kind of been good to me over the last couple of years and just opened my eyes to what a, a selfish jerk I am, right? And I've done so much better recently. I think Joan would tell you this. Like, I'm so in love with my wife. I, so, I can't believe how blessed I am. But I never express it. Like, if you had asked me when I was asking what was for dessert, are you thankful for your wife? I would have said, of course. But I never stopped, I never reflected on all the things she's doing, and I never expressed any of it. I just wanted to know why the bed wasn't made. Right? And so, so gratitude heals, entitlement destroys. I mean, think of your kids. I mean, Courtney's here, she's in her 20s now. But, you know, just between me and you, when you were a teenager, you were a, a, an ungrateful jerk. I mean, I gotta tell you. <laughs> And she would, I think she would tell you this. I mean, every day, right? Caroline was your first service, so she got it. And the worst part is she's still it. But anyway, uh, you know, just this constant. And you wonder why our relationships with our kids get hard in the teen years. One of the reasons is they are ingratitude machines, right? What time can you pick me up? I, you know, literally, like, we were going over this in my small group. This, like, I... I went to the high school four times within 12 hours one day this week, and the fourth time Caroline called me, and I, was, I said to her, I'm going to be seven minutes late, and she goes, seven minutes? This is ridiculous. Now I gotta walk all the way back. And I'm trying to teach on gratitude, right? And then my pride sprung up, and it was a big mess, but. Oh, uh, kills. Ingratitude and a lack of thankfulness kills relationships with those we love and with the God that loves us. Thankfulness is not a feeling. It is not a feeling. You have to stop, reflect, and give thanks. It is just like love. It is an attitude. Gratitude is not a feeling. It is not an emotion. It is a chosen attitude that is expressed through action. Paul, in this letter of joy, chained to the Roman guy, he says this. Look, don't be anxious. Paul could have been anxious. I mean, he was about to get killed. At least he had to be thinking. And he goes, don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, you can choose thankfulness. You can choose to, be, to have this gratitude attitude despite your circumstances. Circumstances move feelings. Attitudes, attitudes are what change us. Don't stop working on your circumstances. Start working on your attitude. Paul says, don't be anxious, but by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving... 
Present your request to God and the peace which you're looking for will guard your hearts and your minds. Paul goes, look, if you, don't be anxious. Give thanks in, no matter what's happening. He tells the Thessalonians three things. He goes, look, you want to know what God's will is for you? Here it is. Rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks. When should we give thanks? In all circumstances. This is God's will for you. Not because God is some egomaniac going, thank me, thank me, thank me, thank me. He's going, you don't understand. If you, don't, if you have this, this attitude of entitlement, it will destroy you. Entitlement destroys Gratitude heals and restores. Now, here's what's cool. Paul writes this stuff 2,000 years ago, right? 2,000 years ago. He says, if you want to change your life, Jesus says, if you want to change your life, you have to be thankful. And now science is saying the same thing. The University of Texas reports, quote, a growing body of research shows gratitude is amazing in its physical and psychosocial benefits. Here's what they did. This is a fascinating study. They, they got a big group of folks together, and they randomly assigned participants. They were each given a journal, and they were each given a task. Each week, the participants kept a short little journal. One group briefly described just five things they were grateful for that had occurred that week. The second group was to record daily hassles, circumstances that displeased them. And the neutral group was just asked to list five things that affected them. They weren't told whether to write if it was negative or positive. So they come back 10 weeks later. One entry, one time a week. They come back 10 weeks later. Participants in the gratitude group felt better about their lives as a whole, were 25% happier, um, they reported fewer health complaints, and they exercised an average of one and a half hours more. Now that's interesting, the researchers thought. We asked them to, to write this out once a week. Gee, I wonder what would happen if we, if we encourage them to, to not just you know, have an emotion of gratitude, but to work on gratitude. What if we told them not once a week, do it once a day? So they tried it. Not surprisingly, this daily practice led to a greater increase in gratitude. And the, the participants in the gratitude group also reported offering, this is so interesting, right? What does gratitude do? It heals relationships, both with God and others. When they started journaling every day about their gratitude, participants in that group reported offering others more emotional support or help with a personal problem, indicating that gratitude, the gratitude exercise, increased their goodwill towards others. See, we love, oh, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. If you want it, start being thankful. Another study conducted, they took adults with congenital and adult onset neuromuscular disorders. The majority had post-polio syndrome. How were the circumstances? Terrible. And they compared, they were compared to those who were not jotting down their blessings. They took a group that jotted down blessings daily. They took another group that didn't. The ones that wrote down their blessings daily reported more hours of sleep, feeling more refreshed. They also reported more satisfaction with their lives as a whole, more optimistic about the upcoming week, and felt considerably more. What does gratitude do? It heals relationships. They felt considerably more connected with others than those who were in the control group. See, you have to work on gratitude. It's not a feeling. And perhaps, this is most telling, the positive changes were markedly noticeable to others 
your wife, your kids. According to the research, spouses of the participants in the gratitude group reported the participants appeared to have higher well-being than did the spouses of the participants in the Kroll group. This is, this is good. There's an old saying that says, if you have forgotten the language of gratitude, you will never be on speaking terms with happiness. It turns out this isn't just a fluffy idea. There are new studies that have shown depression is inversely correlated to gratitude. The more grateful a person is, the less depressed they are. You want to change your life? You got to change your attitude. So how do you do that, right? He's grinning, bear, oh, I'm going to be thankful, right? <laughs> gratitude is not natural. Entitlement is natural, right? You see it with your kids, right? Thanks, whoop, next. Gratitude is not natural. Entitlement is we have to practice gratitude. Here's how. When Jesus was alive, he, he practiced a form of daily prayer that was required of every law-abiding Jew called the 18 benedictions. This is fascinating. Stick with me now. John Ortberg describes it this way. He said, in Hebrew, the word benediction was a prayer that began with the word bless. So to bless was to speak good to somebody else. They always wanted to speak good, to bless, to thank God. And they would do it constantly. In the morning, when a good Jew woke, when Jesus, being a good Jew, woke, right, he would pray the 18 benedictions. Blessed are you, O Lord my God. In the middle of the day, Jesus would pause along with all of his disciples, and they would stop, and they would, they would do the 18 benedictions, 18 things that they were thankful to, for to God. Blessed are you, Lord, who abundantly, forgive, abundantly forgives. And then they would enrich that simple phrase, blessed are you, O Lord, our God. Rabbis would teach the followers how to expand on it. So if you followed one rabbi, he would teach you his 18, or another rabbi would teach you their 18. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, who heals the sick. It would help them remember, I have a body, I've been sick. God's the one who, who's behind my health. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, who sustains the living and raises the dead. I have a hope beyond this life. They were training for gratitude. It doesn't come when your circumstances change. It comes when you see the reality that every good and perfect gift comes from God. And I need to start, I need to stop, reflect, and express. And 18, praying the 18 was a big deal. Rabbis would discuss how best to do it. Right? One rabbi said, you can never say the 18 while you're riding on a donkey. Because you're up a little higher, you might feel a little proud of yourself, right? You need to get off, you need to come down, back down on earth, and then you can say you're 18. They'd regularly gather at the temple to say the 18 benedictions. You see this in the scripture. Acts 3, uh, it says one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They were going to say the 18 benedictions. Every rabbi would teach his disciples how to pray the 18 in their own way. Jesus was a rabbi. He taught how to say the 18. The disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. What were they saying? Lord, how should we pray? What's our way of praying the 18s of blessing God? The Lord's Prayer is the 18 in summary form. Some rabbis used to talk about how to pray the 18 in summary form. Others would expand on it. Right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, blessed be that, blessed be thy name. Blessed are you, O Lord, my God. The early church, they would gather, they would say the Lord's Prayer three times a day. It was part of the 18. 
They were so serious about gratitude that certain rabbis, this is pretty funny, you know, we can get caught in legalism with this, right? Certain rabbis believed that if you forgot to bless God for, for the great gift of food, you had to go back to where you ate your meal and thank him so you wouldn't forget the next time. If you were on the road, it wouldn't matter. You couldn't thank him on the road. You had to go all the way back to the location of your meal. Some of you are going to be doing this at the Chester Diner around 2 o'clock today, right? I can see you driving home. You're halfway to Randolph. Oh, crud, Right? If you want to do the 18 correctly, you've got to go back to the diner, park the car, go back in. Somebody's sitting at your table. Excuse me, I know this is going to sound a little bit weird. Would you mind if I joined you just for one moment? <laughs> i got this crazy pastor who told me I had to do this thing, right? Blessed are you, O Lord our God, for, for what you've provided for me and my family today. Right? That's, that's how serious this became. They recognize gratitude. See, this is so funny. They recognize gratitude in everything. If they had a lamp... Light was a gift to the world, right? God said, let there be light. So they'd say, blessed are you, father of lights. Rain, homes. Disciples would follow their rabbis around everywhere, trying to think and hear what their 18 was. They never knew when they'd hear of another blessing to be thankful for. They wanted to know, well, when that happens, how do I thank God for that? It's a true story now. One rabbi, a very famous first century rabbi, he actually went into the bushes to go to the bathroom and the disciples gathered around. Let's see how he's going to thank God for this. It's a true story. And he wrote, you can look this up, Blessed are you, O Lord, who has formed man in your wisdom and created in him many orifices and many cavities. Now that might sound gross. But it's kind of funny if you've ever had one of those orifices or cavities not working all that well. Suddenly, when, you know, when it comes back, you start going, blessed are you, O Lord. See, the rabbis would write, shame on you for thinking that you're so proper that any part of your existence is too undignified to thank the God who thought it up. Shame on you for thinking there's something unspiritual about your body, something not worth thanking God for. Those psychological and sociological experiments I told you about, you know what they were doing? You know what they were asking the people to do? To write their 18 benedictions. Write them every day. So here's your assignment for the week. We need to move from a people that are entitled. We deserve it to a thankful people. And to do that, we need to exercise. Here's your assignment. Gratitude builds faith and restores relationships. So the first thing I want you to do, I'm going to ask you to do it just twice a day. When you get up and before you go to bed, this will literally take you five minutes. The first day, you're going to have to spend a little time on this. I want you to come up with 18 things. I want you to come up with your own 18. 18 things that you are thankful to God for. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, for my beautiful daughter. Blessed are you, O Lord my God, for this great staff you've given me to work with at Mendham. Blessed are you, O Lord my God, for this church that you've allowed me to be part of. Right? I don't know what yours is, but come up with the 18 and pray them when you get up and right before you go to bed. Don't be like the nine that just keep taking the gifts of God and running off. Sure, you're grateful, but there's no stopping. There's no reflecting. There's no action coming out of it. I dare you, friends, to try this. And see if it does not change how you feel and act and build your faith. If Jesus had to do this, last supper, we're going to celebrate, I think, uh, excuse me, yeah, last supper, we're going to celebrate communion next week. He took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. And then he picked up the cup of wine and he gave thanks. If Jesus Christ needed to practice in his humanity the 18 benedictions, don't you think that we might need to? 
Second thing I'm going to ask you to do, entitlement destroys relationships. Gratitude heals and restores. Who have you just been taking and taking and taking and taking from? Just all the time. Gentlemen, like for me, this one's easy, right? Like I, you know, I apologize to my wife this morning in the service, but like I, I just take who have you taken gifts from and just run off? Oh, of course I'm thankful. If you had asked me if I was thankful to my wife a few years ago, I said, of course I'm thankful. Have you ever stopped, reflected, or expressed? Absolutely not. Right? Why? Because I deserve it, right? Like, who do you need to express gratitude? Maybe you feel it, but that's an emotion. You need to stop, reflect, and express. This week, band, come up. This week. Work on the 18. If Jesus had to do it, you could do it for a few days. See what it does in your life to your faith. This week, think about who you literally owe a debt of gratitude to. You know who you're thankful for, but go and tell them. If it's awkward, I know it's awkward, right? We're not really good relationally. Uh, we struggle with deep things. But write it down and just read it. So I want to pray a prayer over you. Um, as we close. This is a big deal. This will change our church. This will change your marriage. This will change your kids. This heals families, right? It's a big deal. And Paul summed it all up in, in a letter he wrote to the Colossians, and it's essentially a prayer, and I'd like to pray it over you as we get ready to go. So here it is. Paul said, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen.